Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 186 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. Uh, this week again, for the second time in a row, listeners get a treat to have Nick Whitaker on the podcast again, our Director of Research and Trading here at Jessup Wealth Management, because Matthew is out of uh, state for a work trip right now. So welcome back, Nick. Good to be here. Matt's Matt's a traveling man right now. He is. He's he's a traveling man right now. So it's good I have uh, I have you uh, to be able to uh, give listeners uh, what what we put out every week. So thanks yeah. again for hopping in and filling in for Matt. Absolutely. Always good to be here. So I have to start out with this, Nick, because I know you're you're also a basketball fan. I'm a little heartbroken this morning. Uh, Dayton Flyers had another heartbreaking loss last night to mm. a conference uh, rival, Rhode Island, who the head coach is Archie Miller, who used to coach at Dayton. Uh, oh, very sad. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that he was the head coach over there. Yeah. So very sad. But I'm starting to think I'm not a, stup- a superstitious guy usually, but the last three times I've watched Dayton, I've turned the game on, they're up significantly. And then when I start watching, everything goes to hell in a handbasket and they just can't make a shot. They lose. Mm-hmm. And last night, literally, I think I turned it on. There was like 10 minutes left in the first half. They were up by like 12 or 13. And then all of a sudden they couldn't make anything. And then Rhode Island ended up being up at the end of the half. And I'm tuning in here like, oh, we're up by 12 or 13. We'll probably up be up by 8 to 10 by half. Uh, and then I I just turned it off. I told my wife, Kenzie, I was like, I can't I can't do this. So it's a little bit of a problem because my, my dad's coming into town this weekend. I'm taking him to the game, taking my two brothers to the game. So uh, they have another conference rival in, in Richmond. So that should be interesting. Maybe uh... – Maybe watching the whole game through uh, will give you Maybe, different, yeah, uh, from start to end. Yeah. Being in the arena. That's, that's always the worst when you turn your team on a little late, and then the moment you turn them on, they start losing. Oh, it's bad, man. That's bad. not fun. But I, I don't want to be the guy that ruins Dayton season. So. No, I doubt that. I doubt that seriously. <laughs> Uh, before we begin, as always, uh, I want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And um, obviously, uh, we are still in the month of January, so it's going to be the same numbers for the month and the year, uh, just for this last week before we get into February next week. So these are uh, as of the market close on January 25th, and this data is from MyCharts. S&P 500 up 4.6% for the year. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 1.8%. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 8.1%. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index up 7.5%. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF up a whopping 9.3% year to date to start the year. So what's working in... 2023, Nick, seems to be what kind of lagged in 2022, especially technology, 
Um, and then obviously, you know, international equities have underperformed for a decade plus, and we're starting to see signs of that turning around uh, yeah. with the dollar continuing continuing to weaken. Um, so going to be interesting to see how this all plays out, to see if it's just a short-term rotation or if this is a longer-term trend that's just getting started right now. Um, moving on to treasury rates, uh, three-month treasury rate at 4.72%, the two-year treasury at 4.11%, and the 10-year treasury rate at 3.46%. Moving on to big headlines, current events, uh, a little bit of a weird thing happened on Tuesday, Nick. There was a like a glitch in the NYSE, the stock exchange that mm-hmm. a lot of popular stocks trade on uh, here in the U.S., um, and they said that there was a manual error that led to wild prices temporarily um, with, you know, having trading halts and, and stops and dozens of stocks, kind of like McDonald's, Walmart. Uh, I think AT&T was affected, Eli Lilly, United Healthcare, and a bunch of others that listeners would probably be familiar from. But if you pull up a chart of like Walmart or McDonald's or UNH, you'll see this weird candle right of of a range that's like really wide sometimes like within like 25 percent and obviously that's not normal for a stock to trade within a 25 percent range in one day especially stocks like the ones we're referring to these are big big cap names so Um, it might be normal um, on a micro cap name at times the open uh, the bid the bid and the ask on the open but these were your your big liquid name so you don't see that which shouldn't really happen correct um, yeah so yeah. there are, i mean there are a bunch of trades that needed to be busted which means just yeah. you know like they never happened so um yeah. that was interesting because we all woke up and i was looking at the market in the morning at 9 30 and i was like what is going on i i got a little panicked for a second i was like this better not be another another flash crash that uh Mm -hmm. we experienced uh several decades ago because that wouldn't be fun but it was just a manual error and that was uh mended yeah and clients Uh, clients don't need to worry about anything with 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 pricing on that that what they'll do is they'll bust the trades and everything goes back to normal it's uh, nothing to stress about right uh, second thing was the SEC voted on Wednesday, um, kind of eliminating conflicts of interest, something related to the financial crisis in 07 and 08 that was kind of a problem, Nick. And, you know, obviously one of the issues with the financial meltdown was uh, these things called mortgage backed securities. Um, and, you know, these investment banks kind of packaging these really crappy loans that they knew had a very, very high chance of failing. And there was no conflict of interest rule in place that prevented them for betting against that. So they would package these, you know, these bad loans together, right? They would sell it to somebody and then they would essentially short it because they were like, we know this is a pile of, you know, what, and it's yeah. going to blow up eventually, and they profited off of that. So the SEC voted to ban, um, you know, investment bankers who package those types of loans uh, for from betting against them. Um, and again, this was just one of the things that I think exacerbated uh, the pain in 07 and 08. So I think it's good that um, the SEC is is taking action on that, although a little <laughs> a little late, um, but. You know, I guess uh, yeah. getting it getting it passed is is better than not getting it passed at all. So, yeah, 
Yeah, the article. The article mentioned, um, and this and viewers might have seen this on the Wall Street Journal or other major news sites in the past couple of days. But um, um, the article mentioned that they tried. The SEC tried in two thousand and eleven to get this passed. But what they do is they'll they'll pass a, a a rule and then they'll open it to what they call public comment, where they can see receive comments from major institutions, major banks, CEOs, et cetera, to understand the impact of the rule. And if it's going to to mess something up or like break the system or really cause issues with liquidity, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, they opened up for public criticism criticism in, in 2011 and, and they just got overwhelmed. Um, mm -hmm. And so the rule didn't, didn't get implemented. So they're, they're taking another swing at it. I think this time it's, it's done a little better. Um, but I think it's probably something that needed to be done, um, yeah. just, just to kind of control, uh, some of, some of the madness that went on back in those days. So, well, yeah, it's almost, I mean, you can almost like call that like a, I don't know, a synonym, if you will, of insider trading. I mean, these right. people know that, you know, these loans are, are crap and, yeah. You know, um, and it, it, it opens, it opens up the doors as well to these big institutions, you know, having an easier opportunity to to act fraudulently. Mm -hmm. Whereas if this rule is in place, and one of the major changes that they they made was, you know, within the, a year of the security sale, um, these the basically the broker would be prohibited from short selling the instrument or using derivatives like credit default swaps um, to bet against them. So that year timeline that's that's long enough to where you don't really want to be selling something. And it's different for hedging. They and they acknowledge that. Like obviously, banks they need to hedge out their books. Uh, mm -hmm. Their their goal is to make money on the commissions. But um, just putting that timeline on that, I think, will help a lot with the issue because right. that was that was what was going on with with OA was yeah. just the the expediency the expediency with which these banks were acting to unleverage their books and short short sell us. <laughs> short sell what they're selling, get it off their books at the same time they're they're, they're shorting it. Yeah, it created yeah, a snowball a effect. Yeah. yeah. So absolutely. I think so. this is a good a good rule in the long run. Agreed. Um, but we'll see what happens. Moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. Uh, first thing I have is, again, moving back to this January trifecta indicator where uh, the last five days of the trading year are positive, the first five days of the trading year are positive, and the full month of January is positive. It tends to be a pretty good barometer of what happens the rest of the year, Nick. So We'll have Jenna throw uh, this chart up on um, the video for everybody to see and in the show notes. So um, it's a chart from Stock Traders Almanac uh, with Ned Davis Research data. Um, and it shows that when there's been a bear market in the prior year and the January trifecta is three for three, it's super bullish for the year that we're in. So obviously January is off to a good start and the trifecta is two for two so far with the Santa Claus rally and first five days of January being positive. Um, so we're gonna be keeping our eye on the January barometer, but again, the S&P like we mentioned uh, already is up uh, four plus percent for the month of January with just a few trading days left. So I think, um, you know, barring any, you know, massive volatility event, we should end the, the month of January positive, which would be good. Um, but if you look at this chart, um, this has happened 13 times since 1949, Nick, where we had a bear market the year before, 
and then we had the January trifecta indicator, all those 13 times, the full year has never been down with double digit gains every year up to 22% on average. Um, so typically our market, and then we have this January uh, trifecta indicator get into place. Um, obviously, I think it's important to note that it's a small sample size. It's only happened 13 times, but I mean, the returns are, are pretty staggering on, on this chart, Nick. So um, obviously this, I think, would be a, a very positive thing for investor sentiment and, and the market in general, just help you know, investors and money managers manage risk the rest of the year um, on, you know, what typically has happened in the past. Uh, oh, I, I, I muted there, buddy. I, I muted myself <laughs> while, I was, while I was drinking my water there. Uh, I was saying, yeah, absolutely. And, and the one caveat I'll put out for listeners and, and anyone, and I've said, I've said this many a times, but I always like to remind listeners, um, you're going to see a lot of the headlines about recession and hard landing. And so the question might be, how is it possible that the S&P is going to run up 20% when we're going into a recession? Just a reminder that the market is always forward looking. That's what was happening all of last year is, is in, the, in the bond market and then the, in the equity market, we're pricing in, pricing in and pricing in these, uh, the pain is to be expected. And so that's yeah. why this, this kind of price action can happen, even though, you know, a recession, uh, a recession is, is very possible this year. Well, I think a perfect example of that, Nick is, you know, obviously one of the major news headlines has been all of these tech layoffs, right. From right. Facebook, right. Uh, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, um, all that stuff. And you look at these tech names year to date and they're off to a great start. Right. So it's like, the, the stock stocks are not the economy. The economy is not the stock market. And they could be telling two different stories like they are right now. And it's going to make people scratch their head and be like, well, I, you know, I would have expected, you know, Google to be down when they announced however many right. layoffs, 50,000 layoffs or whatever they did. Right. And I think the next day the stock was up like 5%. So yeah, it's, it's cost savings, right? You know, and make more money. <laughs> the so, margins, the margins do better, and and that's not a recommendation for or against any of those names. Just just examples, really. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, moving on, switching gears a little bit from the market. Uh, this was a tweet from car dealership guy, one of my new favorite Twitter followers uh, or follows. Um, this was on January eighth. He said it's a very shitty time to lease a car. The new car shortage has made leases much less attractive. Of course, there are some exceptions, but overall terms are tighter, payments are higher, and a consumer, as a consumer, you have fewer buyout options post lease. So I just thought it was interesting because I think this is, you know, always a debate of, well, should I buy or should I lease? And it looks like according to to this guy who, you know, in my opinion, is an expert in the field, it's probably better to to buy a car right now. And I think that makes sense, right? We're starting to see car prices come down. Tesla just announced massive cuts uh, on their cars. Um, used car prices especially have come in significantly. Um, so if you're thinking about getting a new car and you've been a, you know, historical leaser, maybe it's time to, uh, to look into buying something. Makes sense too in a rising rate environment. Yeah. That, I like that to leasing get, will get more expensive. Yeah. I'd like to get this guy on. So I'll have Jenna make a note of that and see if we can get the uh, 
car dealership guy on because I think it's a really uh, interesting piece of your personal finances. And sometimes mm -hmm. the disparity between, you know, leasing a car or buying a car in terms of, you know, monthly costs can be huge. It's kind of like, you know, deciding if you should buy a house or rent a house or an apartment or condo um, could have a, a pretty big impact on, on your overall monthly financials. So um, absolutely see if we can get him on here sometime in the future. Uh, last thing I had, Nick, was a tweet from Ryan Dietrich, and I went back in the archives here. This was back from October of last year. Uh, I'll have Jenna throw this up here for everybody to see. So, so Ryan tweeted in October last year, he said, interesting that price made new lows last week, but the number of stocks to make new lows didn't. There could be some actual internal strength taking place here. This is a definite positive in a world that can use some. So it's a chart of the S&P 500 back in October where we made new lows on the S&P 500. And that's in the upper panel. The bottom panel is the U.S. stocks 52-week highs versus 52-week lows. So, you know, typically when we make new lows in an index like the S&P 500, we would expect the majority of stocks to be making new lows as well as the index. But what a lot of people don't understand, I think, Nick, is that the S&P 500 is market cap weighted. So mm -hmm. the larger the company, the more weight it has in the industry. But again, like we've talked about before, you know, we want to see the majority of stocks, regardless of their weight, participate in their moves higher when the index is moving higher, just so we know it's, you know, the S&P 500 isn't getting dragged higher by all the FANG names, for example, mm -hmm. the heavy tech names. So what you'll see here is that, you know, when the S&P 500 made new lows in October, the U.S. stocks making 52 week lows did not make a new low. So, you know, obviously we had we had a pretty good sell off in June of this year. You saw, you know, stocks making a new low uh, on a 52 week low basis and the majority of stocks were making new lows, but the majority of stocks were not making new lows in October when we had that bottom. So that's one of the signs just to educate people that we look for is that we call that a divergence when an index is making a new low, but the number of stocks making a new low has not made a new low. Um, so I know it's kind of a mouthful there, but we'd like to see that because that tells us looking back at history that we're getting closer and closer to seller exhaustion. Um, and there are opportunities out there that maybe possibly this is the ultimate and final bottom before we start this new phase of a bull market. Yep, absolutely. I can't add anything on. That was well said. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll turn it over uh, to you yeah. to talk about uh, the yield curve. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the first piece of research I have for listeners is on yield curve inversion on 10 and one year. This is research from Charlie, um, and compound research, we love we love him over there at. Uh, I have at, a question uh, for you. Gun yeah. to your head, you can only listen to one person for the rest of your life. Charlie, yeah. or Jonathan Farrow. Oh, oh <laughs> man, <laughs> oh man. I mean, it depends. If we're going from an entertainment perspective, then I would I would say Jonathan Farrow. But I would have to choose Charlie because he's he's a little more research dominant. So I would I would have to choose Charlie. But 
if I was retired, Jonathan Farrow all day. Right. <laughs> right. Just had to get that out there. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so Charlie pulled up this chart from Fred, um, and he says the following: the spread between the ten-year and the one-year Treasury yields moved down to one point two six last week, the most inverted curve since September of nineteen eighty-one. The last eight recessions in the U.S. were all precedented, excuse me, were all preceded by an inversion in this yield curve relationship. And there's a chart that we'll show, uh, we'll throw up for for listeners that can show just how inverted it is. And um, just checking in on it. And it's you know this is not new news. Um, the 1981 is interesting, but uh, a good chart nonetheless, and a reminder to to listeners that this is still out there. And that's another reason why you're going to hear. Um, the consistent talks of of recessions. Yeah, and for those people that are maybe new to listening to the podcast, again, the yield curve is something we look at to see kind of where the risk is in the market because in a normal environment, you would expect a 10-year government bond to yield more than a year government bond because there's a lot more time for things to go wrong, right? So we like to say that there's just more risk in holding something for 10 years than there is in one year. But when a one-year bond is paying investors more than a 10-year bond, then it's like, okay, uh, there's more risk, obviously, here in the short term that the market's pricing in and telling us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why we like to, to look at the yield curve. And it's it's been inverted for a little bit of time now. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. again, it's, it's not going to tell us exactly when a recession is going to hit, but it's had a pretty good mm-hmm. hit rate um, in preceding a recession anywhere by, you know, six to 22 months or something like that. Yeah, it's a wide range. It's, it's more just uh, an indicator. Right. The next piece I have is on Q4 earnings thus far, and it's kind of a two for one for for everyone. Um, so the first the first part here is a tweet from the twenty first. Um, this is Aisha Tariq. She's a CFA and market researcher. Writes to a lot of different sources. Uh, TraderAid is is one of the ones she writes to, and she says the following: To date. For Q4 2022, the blended earnings decline for the S&P 500 is minus 4.6%. So a decline in, in corporate earnings thus far, which is to be expected. The other piece I wanted to show, just to give a give a little bit of perspective, is a, is a piece of research from Christopher Barad. He's a French economist, and he's showing facts at data that breaks down the S&P 500 earnings growth, the end of quarter estimate and what actually happened so you can see the difference. And then it's kind of a two charts stacked on each other. And the bottom chart that you'll see here is um, the surprise percentage over, over the past five years of how much that actual number surprised consensus. And you can see that the surprise number has actually gone down. So and meaning these- like number of companies that have... Um- reported earnings above what wall street was expecting yeah 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 um and so this top chart here you can see the end of quarter estimate for the the overall decline in corporate earnings growth is negative 3.2%. So expecting earnings to come down by 3.2%. And that tweet I just read to date, we're at minus 4.6%. 
So we're kind of in that range. Yes, we're surprising to the downside a little bit, but um, kind of in that in that range, which is, which is to be expected. And we're still, we're still in the middle of earnings. So this could certainly change, but um, what we're hearing thus far is not surprising for market participants. No, especially given the year we had in 2022 and what's going on in the economy. I don't, I don't think this should be surprising at all, but the main, the main meat of the earnings reports haven't come out yet. It'll be, there's, there's a lot this week and a couple more today, I believe. And then next week is the heavy hitters. Um, the, the yep. names that most people uh, are familiar with. So we'll keep an yeah. eye on that. Absolutely. And the last piece I have is on the implied, uh, the implied Fed funds rate for the June meeting, which is ways away, I realize, but it's uh, it's an interesting piece of research from Liz Ann Saunders. She's the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab. She says the following, implied Fed funds rate for June for the June meeting still sitting below 5% and not moving much over the past few months. And there's a chart that we'll throw up here and you can see what, what the applied rate is. And basically that's the market looking out in the future saying, hey, when are we going to get to 5%? And when are we going to get to that terminal rate where the Fed is no longer hiking and they're holding steady? And over the past few months, the market is, is feeling confident and has not moved around on that projection that the Fed's going to get there by June. They're going to get to their terminal rate around 5% by June, and, and they're going to hold it there and then eventually start to start to decrease once the cycles are, are returning to, to normal. Why this is important is it, it allows the market to feel to, to get a little bit of the warm and fuzzies and i think this is another contributing factor to why the market can can have some strong pricing as of late it's the fact that clearly the market feels more comfortable that we know what is what is going to happen in the future with rates and so this this idea that you know what's coming and you're not going to be surprised by rates going up to seven or or this process of the hikes going up and up and up dragging out, that is uh, very important for all market participants and all, all investors. Uh, very, very important to, to feel like you know what the Fed's going to do. You know when they're going to, they're going to stop. You have, you can kind of see a light at the end of the tunnel so you can, uh, you know, position your portfolios accordingly and, and not, um, have to wonder if there's going to be a, a surprise hike or something like that. So, right. Yeah. And I, I just looked up what the effective federal federal funds is right now, Nick, and it's sitting at 4.33%. Yeah. So, you know, that yeah. 5%, like you said, has kind of been the number out there that people are yeah. expecting rates to, to stop going up. So yeah. Uh, yeah, they meet again in just under a month, I believe. I think it's in mid February. Uh, so we will yeah. be watching that closely. Absolutely. Moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. Uh, Nick, this was an article from Kindness Financial Planning titled How to Talk to Adult Kids About Money and Inheritances. So I know this is in a lot of families, I think talking about money and inheritances is kind of a taboo subject. Um, But, you know, I think it's 
at least from our view, it's very important to have these conversations with your adult kids about how things are going to go upon your passing, especially if your parents own, um, you know, like a family owned business, for example, that's been in the family for a long time. And if something happens to the both of them, then you're next in line to figure out what to do with that. Um, So I thought this was a really good article. Um, And they start out with this. First, it's important to talk to your adult kids about money sooner rather than later because life happens. One day you're fine, the next you're not. You may have thoughts uh, for decades or at least years to see how your kids turned out uh, and how you want to structure your estate plan, but you may not get that chance. Money conversations should be an open dialogue and it's important to come back to them regularly, regularly as life changes. So they list out three reasons each why it's important for your kids to have this conversation and why it's important for you as a parent to have this conversation. So starting off with the kids, they're already thinking about it. Trust me, even if you have never talked about money or have only talked about certain aspects of your financial life, your kids are wondering whether you will be okay. They may even wonder what they need to do if you died or became incapacitated. You can put their mind at ease. So even if it's not a conversation of, hey, this is how much we have. If you frame it in a way that this is your role, if something mm-hmm. happens to me or right. your mom, for example, then that's a conversation that's going to be really helpful to them, right? Yep. Um, number two is questions can be answered. If your adult kid has concerns, questions, or something is unclear about how you want your estate divided, they can ask now. You can't ask questions of a dead person and get a response. I've frequently seen ambiguity in estate planning documents such as a trust or will. What if you could address those questions or better yet, rewrite them with more clarity before you died? Also, your adult kids may bring up questions or scenarios you haven't considered. What if one of your adult children plans to have more kids? What if one grandchild may need more care because they have special needs? Having conversations about money before death gives everyone an opportunity to ask questions, play out the scenarios in the will, and understand what should happen. And I think one of the biggest things that advisors run into, Nick, is that, yes, a lot of people don't have any estate planning documents, but if they do, they haven't been updated in 20 years since like around the time your kids were born, right? Because that's that's what we call a triggering event. When you have kids, Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, if we don't have estate planning documents, we got to create them. Or if we have them, we have to update them. And typically, once you have kids, you have the estate planning documents. And then when they're 20 or 30 years old, those estate planning documents were made as if they were still two, <laughs> right? right. Yeah. Um, so it's important because I, I think a lot of parents, they want to update their trustees and their their healthcare and financial power of attorneys. And even some of the people that they had listed to do those roles are no longer with them, right? That they have already passed away. So we got to make sure that we're constantly updating those things. Uh, and reason number three is conflicts are better when alive. When someone dies, grief shows up. Paperwork shows up, family dynamics come out for better or for worse. To the extent you can reduce or eliminate conflict, wouldn't you want to? I know many families are afraid of introducing conflict by mentioning how they plan to leave assets or death, but rarely do conflicts get better after death when you are not there to help. It's going to be a conflict or hard feelings. It's often better to address it while you still can. And I've experienced this several times, Nick. Death does some some 
right? Um, I think every parent wants to believe that, you know, when they pass away that their kids are going to be uh, extremely cordial or other family members are going to be extremely cordial and there's not going to be an issue. And they just say, Hey, I'm not, you know, I don't need an estate planning document because, you know, Mary knows exactly what I want. She'll split up the assets. So I'm just going to list her as the beneficiary on, on all of my accounts. And, and I've seen it firsthand that, you know, all bets are off once the, the, the matriarchs of the family are, are gone. And, as close of a relationship that you may have with your siblings or other family members that are going to be left assets, it starts to get really difficult. And if you have these documents outlined and everyone understands them, um, it really helps in the process of keeping families close rather than kind of pushing them apart. Mm-hmm. Um, next is the three reasons why it's important for the parent. Number one is so that your kids can honor your wishes. Most adult kids want to honor your wishes. The problem is that they may not know your wishes at all. You may think because you talk about something frequently that they understand that that may translate into dividing assets, preparing for a funeral, or what medical decisions you want and how that may affect your finances, but there is a good chance that they don't. If you tell your adult kids exactly what you want done, they can be more at ease knowing what to do if something happens to you. Your adult kids have no way of honoring those values if it isn't explicitly discussed. Number two, they can plan their lives. You may need long-term care for years. The stock market may have a prolonged decline, so you may spend more than anticipated. While the financial inheritance may not look like what it is today, it doesn't mean the numbers and initial plan can't help your adult kids make better decisions about their own life. If you think you may run out of money during a long-term care event, your adult kid may want to know and figure out how they could help support you or what it means to move closer to you. Although every plan can be thrown off course, knowing the possible outcome is helpful. Last but not least, reason number three, an inheritance could mean meaningful life changes. I've heard of people blowing through large inheritances only to become broke. I've heard of people wishing that they had known they could get a large inheritance so that they could have spent more time with family rather than working. I've heard of people feeling guilty about inheritances and wanting to give it away. An inheritance or any sudden large sum of money can change life. Not knowing it is coming can cause a rainbow of emotions. I know that these people who worry about adult kids becoming lazy, um, excuse me, I know that there are people who worry about their adult kids becoming lazy uh, that they know is going to going to get an inheritance. But I think most people want to work, be connected with society and find purpose in their work. Um, so, you know, while I can see the concerns about, you know, people having kids that get lazy, if they know that there's a large inheritance coming their way, um, you know, if you flip that on its head, you know, maybe they can work part-time and help take care of you instead of you going into a long-term care facility where you could be cared for at your home by your own child rather than a stranger, right? So, and I think that's an instance or an example of things that people don't necessarily think about um, where they just automatically go to, oh, well, my kid's, you know, just going to sit around all day if, if, if they don't work. And that's not necessarily always the case. Um, so I think this article did a really good job of explaining the different reasons why you should have this conversation with your adult kids. 
And again, I don't even think you even have to start with the amount of money you have. I would start with, you know, how everything is divvied up, who's in charge of the healthcare power of attorney, who's in charge of the financial power of attorney, who decides what to do with the family business in the event that mom and dad pass away. Start there and then you can progressively move towards uh, the dollar amounts if you want to. But first things first, you have to make sure that the estate planning documents are, are in place because without those, nothing else matters. Absolutely. It's not fun stuff, but it's very important. No. Yeah, it, it definitely is. So uh, anything else, Nick, before we leave it there for the week? No, that was everything for me. Uh, thanks for having me again. Yeah. Well, thanks for, for joining me and filling in for, for Matthew. And thanks everyone for tuning in to episode 186 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a great weekend. Uh, and a wonderful rest of the week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.